Hey, it's Lou Carlozo, the host of Bankadelic in Chicago, the sister podcast to Dave and Darn Demystify. And what a guest they have today on the podcast, Brett King, who some years ago asked me to help test an idea he had called Movin. Using its payments and financial system was incredibly easy and seamless. And that's the kind of thinker Brett is. When I started my own financial services podcast, Breaking Banks was the podcast I looked up to as a gold standard. And Brett has just gone from strength to strength, best-selling author, a banking expert, and maybe most importantly, a terrific guy. Today on the podcast, you're going to hear him talk about his career and all of the different things that he is excited about in financial services and fintech. Take it away, guys. From the studios of Contrarian, new media in the UK and US, comes the Dave and Dom Demystify Show. Dave. The Dave and Dom Demystify Show, making sense of the world of fintech and digital finance. Sit back and listen as the two Ds take a subject and chat it through to make it clearer and easier to understand. And now, here are your hosts, Dave Wallace and Dom Mystery. Demystify. Hi everybody, welcome to this week's show. And this week we have a very, very special guest. He's a good friend of mine who I've known for many, many years. Almost 20 years, David. Almost 20 years. So for those who don't know him, he's Brett King. So Brett, tell us a bit about yourself. Well, I go by various names or titles these days. I'm an author. I have six books in print right now. I'm working on my seventh. I've had a number of bestsellers. I run a radio show in the US in the tri-state area in New York City on the AM band called Breaking Banks. It's also the world's number one fintech podcast. I'm the well, founder. obviously after this one. <coughs> oh, um, yes, <laughs> if, if you wish. Um, uh, stats don't lie, dude. If... Um, <laughs> On the other side, obviously, I am the founder of a fintech myself, Movin. We started off as the world's first mobile challenger bank in 2010. We have now morphed into a banking as a service platform. We're working with banks in 13 geographies, about 30 million users on the platform on a distributed basis right now. So pretty decent startup there. And I'm a sci-fi nerd. Excellent. Excellent. Well, how do you cram all this stuff in is my first question because that's, you know. <laughs> it helps not to sleep. No, I think a lot of it's complimentary, obviously, and it's been a little easier this year. Last year I did 30 countries as a speaker off the back oh, of the wow. success of the books. You know, generally I'm speaking at 100 events as a speaker or a content author. So I have to have a really good team around me. The team at Movin is phenomenal that support me when I can't be there in person, although we're all working from home now anyway. And then, you know, my speaking team and the team at Provoke FM, Provoke Media, who manage the show production and the content side of things there, you know, it's just really comes down to having the right people around you. But you've got to have a passion for it, obviously. I first met you, as you said, it was almost, I mean, gosh, 20 years ago. And it was in Hong Kong. So we were a small little business or I was founder of a small business that had just won 
a contract with HSBC to redesign internet banking. We've done that in the UK. And Pib uh, second generation, Peter well, G. Peter G, of course, with the gel bar. Who can forget the gel bar? The gel bar, yeah. <laughs> so we came out to Hong Kong, and I remember it well, because the thought was we could take what we'd done in the UK and actually bring it to Hong Kong. And I think there was immediate pushback because people were sort of saying... You know, there's too much white space. People in Hong Kong, they like very busy websites. And then I remember we met and you said, well, look, guys, it's very easy to solve this as a thing. Let's just do some user testing, you know. So So I started working with Pip Brooks, who is still at HSBC, although on contract now, and Michael Armstrong back in late 2001, I guess it would have been. Michael and I met through the Australian Graduate School of Management MBA program where I was teaching the e-business elective and we met through that and he then invited me into the team. The first project we did for HSBC was a usability test of the existing internet banking platform. We had some early successes with that. I'll give you an indication. And this was sort of started. We were information design architects at the time, if you like. You know, we were doing usability testing, testing certain components of the experiences and sort of putting that back, feeding that back into your process, Heath Wallace, Dave, to sort of come out with the designs. And we would have joint sessions working together, which I remember were great. But the first thing we did was sort of a mass usability test of the existing internet banking And, you know, we made some pretty big discoveries. We were asking people to change their email address or their physical address in the system and they couldn't find it because there was this little tab up in the corner of the internet banking, which was services. And within there was the change personal information form or whatever it was. And people couldn't find it because services to them was something HSBC was trying to sell you. And so the feedback out of the usability tests made that clear. It was just a naming convention problem. So we changed that tab from services to my HSBC. And overnight, once we launched that, call center traffic dropped 15% around the issues of change of address and so forth. So it was a very simple change, but it proved to the broader HSBC organization that some form of user testing and interaction with the customers could be really beneficial. And so then... Did they really not do any user testing before that? Remember, this was 2000, 2001. Usability testing was very, very new, Damesh. You know, there was Nielsen Norman Group and Don Norman and Jacob Nielsen that were doing this stuff, but it was fringe. It was really fringe. It was out there and wasn't a lot known about it. Certainly with organizations like HSBC, they'd never heard of usability testing like this until we sort of brought it along. Then we launched at end of 2001, early 2002, travel insurance online. And Dave, I think you know the stats on that one. It was massively successful. HSBC at the time was doing 800 new travel insurance applications every month through their existing branch network. But it wasn't a big product for them. And so we suggested putting it online. And we redesigned this by interaction design session, whiteboarding, 
you know, like you do with paper prototyping yeah. now, but we did this on whiteboards, right? We didn't call it interaction design. It didn't have a name at the time. We were just designing what we thought the optimal flow would be. And we made a huge sort of discovery, which was the whole identity onboarding process and the identity check process or verification that was required for travel insurance wasn't really necessary for the onboarding because most of the customers, we knew who they were because they're existing customers of HSBC with internet banking access. And secondly, it wasn't until you actually made a claim that you had to actually prove your identity. And so we were able to create this one page onboarding process for travel insurance. And six months in, we were getting 15,000 online wow. applications for travel insurance every month. And then that doubled a year later to over 30,000. And the branch was still doing 800. So the whole argument of digital would cannibalize the branch, which was the mantra at the time, we sort of dispelled that and were able to show net new revenue, significant net new revenue through digital. So these were the early days of my work with HSBC. But of course, it was in 2004, 2005, we came together for the P2G explain what peter g is because so oh this God, was, we this was the running joke you know we had this guy come in dan uh, zook you remember dano dave i do remember dan and dano came in of course dave and i and simon webb and matt dooley matt, matt dooley we were on this project and we're in the room and modeling this stuff out and dano came in and he was with us for a day and we're all talking about this you know at the end of the day he asked the simple question he said look guys i'm really enjoying this conversation it's really useful but when do i get to meet peter g because you know, this was the acronym that was being used. And it wasn't a guy, of course. It was uh, personal internet banking, PIB, second generation. That was the joke that sort of lived throughout the rest of the project. And, of course, up until just about a year ago, that had been the internet banking design. It lasted well over a decade, that design we put in place in 2005. And so I think we did a pretty decent job, Dave. It was an incredible experience because we ended up with that becoming the global standard. So we moved from the UK to Hong Kong and then sort of the rest of the world. And I think, you know, we were a tiny but perfectly formed team who was kind of going around. We were doing things like usability testing. So it was new in Hong Kong, but you go to sort of other places around the world, absolutely mind-blowing for these people that you'd actually go and talk to customers rather than sort of leave internet banking up to the technology teams. And I think... What we managed to do over a few years was sort of hit the balance towards customers in terms of how much emphasis we put on their needs, you know. And I think we saw some incredible stuff. Do you remember Roberta Arena from GB? I remember her standing up and saying, well, look, there's been something like 2 billion visits to our website over the last year. And, you know, you touched all of those people with the work that you've done. And it was sort of like mind-blowing that from that, as you said, Peter's little office in one Queens Road Central, we sort of ended up in that place. I remember it after we did some work on the launch of HSBC Premier from a digital perspective, that was with Martin Rawling and, of course, with Paul Thurston, who was head of PFS at the time. And Paul said, you guys know our customers better than we know them when it yep. comes to digital. And that for me was a sign of success because we were adding real value at the time. We were giving them insights and sort of changing the trajectory of an organization that was very hard to change the trajectory of because of this customer data. It was very, very powerful stuff. You know, I'm just going to mention another couple of people as well, because I cannot emphasize how small the team was, but 
I don't know if you remember Alison Fleming, who just yeah. single-handedly rewrote an entire website. And then obviously Christina Jung, who just, yeah. you know, she just did an incredible job of pushing us through. And I think the reason I sort of talk about it is Darmish and I have reflected on some of our past experience. But I guess the question for you is, you know, you'd been involved in the bank, but did this sort of help fuel what you're doing today famously you can see in the back if we got this on video you can see i've got my bank 2.0 poster up here which is the first book i wrote in 2010 and it became of course my first bestseller in 20 countries which for a first book was just phenomenal but the truth is that five years before it was peter brooks in november 2005 that had said to me hey brett we've got a little bit of budget left (laughs) (laughs) what can you do with it? You know? And I said, I want to go full futurist, Peter. I want to do like, what is HSBC going to be like in 2020? You know, let's do a HSBC 2020 report. And I brought in all these guys, guys from PayPal and guys like Mike Walsh, who's still a very strong futurist and others sort of bring in to strategize on this. And we did this report back in 2005 and, you know, sort of launched it early in 2006. And in the report, we said that by 2012, internet banking would surpass the branch on a transactional basis. And then by 2015, mobile would surpass the internet banking as the number one channel transactionally. And that by 2020, digital would be the number one channel for revenue for HSBC, beating out PRMs, personal relationship managers and branch channels. And we published this thing. There was a bunch of other stuff in there that you're on social media and so forth. We called it HSBC 2.0, this report. And ultimately, most Most of those predictions we made in that report have come true and then some, but at the time when we rolled this out and we had Paul Thurston's support on this as well, we went to visit Canary Wharf and all that sort of stuff, Peter Brooks and I, and the board, for example, they just didn't get it. They thought it was ludicrous that we were proposing that digital could even be in the same universe as the bank branch in terms of its importance for the bank. And so I then spent sort of the next four years on that mantra of that report we had built and was so frustrated by sort of running into those brick walls of apathy around the industry that I decided to turn that into the first book. And because I thought there must be thousands of guys like me in the trenches at banks facing this sort of brick wall around transformation and I have to speak for them. And that's exactly how it worked. You know, you get these tech guys that were out on social, had heard about me writing on social, saw the book came out, bought it, and then went to the CTO or the CEO, slammed the book on his desk and said, don't believe what I've been saying about the web and mobile, read what this guy says about it. And suddenly, (laughs) you know, I had the CEO of Standard Chartered and the CEO of BBVA and others buying hundreds of these books for all their managers to sort of get their head around what was going to happen with digital transformation and my second or third career was sort of launched you know well i don't know if you remember but we had dinner around the pool i think it was one of the hotels in hong kong four seasons and you said oh i'm writing a book and i was like what why would you be writing a book and there's an honorable mention i think in bank 2.0 because i helped you absolutely with a few pages in it but i was like nah this bloke's mad to be honest with you and i still keep it changed my-, my life man it changed my <laughs> life you know 
<laughs> I mean, look, visiting like last year, 30 countries, the year before that, 28 or something, you know, visiting the world, speaking on this stuff, obviously, you know, augmented my book in 2015, ended up on the desk of President Xi. I ended up advising the Obama administration as a result of fintech. All of that came from the book, you know, not to mention the sort of million dollars a year in speaking that sort of generated off the back of this as well. It's been life-changing for me, but it was a logical extension. You know, you'll recall also, Dave, during the noughties, I ended up relocating to Dubai. I do remember, yeah. So I was spending my time going back and forth between Dubai and Hong Kong. And I did that because Richard Petty and I, and Richard, you remember, was involved in a couple of the projects at HSBC as well, Dr. Richard Petty. We had established a financial services training company in Dubai and it took off as Dubai's economy expanded. And so I had to go there, but I was still doing the digital consultancy piece as well doing that but we suddenly had this huge financial services business in Dubai and ballooning from that but that produced this sort of content view of the world you know creating content for these training programs and conferences and things and so then it was a sort of logical transition then to become a thought leader in the digital transformation space what I was passionate about I just didn't think it would work as well as it had and now I've got the radio show I started in 2013 obviously the startup moving we were the first mobile challenger bank in the world back in 2010 how did you get into moving I mean that's the thing I want to know the most really it's an amazing thing that you've done this consultancy written the book but then you started a company that was well ahead of its time obviously being the first mobile challenger bank we were a little too early actually because it was very very hard to raise money for a challenger bank in 2010 but i'll tell you the story august 2010 i was still on the book tour i'd done july i'd done new york June, I was in London and then Los Angeles. The first week of August, where I attended this big breakfast put on by a friend of mine, his name is Ken Ritowski. He's a radio show host in LA and he runs this networking breakfast every Saturday called Metal, which you know has all these producers and VCs and so forth. And he asked me to speak on the book. So I went along to this breakfast and there was a VC there, a guy by the name of William Quigley, a guy who's really big in crypto now. He was one of the creators of Tether. But back at the time, he was a VC, you know, looking a little bit at the financial services space. And Ken asked me, what's the bank account of the future look like? And I said, well, you know, you don't go to a branch to sign up for a bank account in the future. You just download an app to your phone, you'll sign up in the app and you'll use your phone to pay instead of a plastic card. And not only that, your phone will give you advice in real time, you know, when and where you need it. It's going to be a smart bank account. And Quigley said, yeah, but banks aren't going to build this. (laughs) You know, because it's going to destroy their whole org structure, metrics and product model. So who's going to do this? And I was like, I will. And so that afternoon I went home and registered the domain Move and Bank, Move and Bank. I always wondered where the name came from. That makes total sense now. And that's what kicked off. By December, I put together a small team of guys that you know, were in the fintech space that were friends, you know, Chris Skinner and others that we came together. We put a bit of money together, about half a million bucks, and used that to bootstrap and kickstart off uh, moving. Wow. And that was in the US, right? Correct. I was still mainly in Hong Kong, a little bit in Australia, because after the financial crisis, I'd left Dubai. But, you know, the book launch sort of pushed me into moving to the US. In fact, Alex Sion, who was my co-founder at Movin, he was at a company called Sapient at the time, Sapient Nitro. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And he bought me in as the resident futurist. 
right? Wow. So after the book launch, he brought me in on a two-year contract as a resident futurist for Sapient Nitro to sort of basically scare the financial services organizations into buying consulting and design work, which worked tremendously. But after the first year, I opted out of that contract and grew moving and he came over eventually as part of the team as well, but was the co-founder really on that side. Looking back, would you have started in Europe? And I find that we're a bit more progressive on the internet and stuff like that, but would you have started in Europe instead? From a regulatory perspective, yeah, absolutely. Europe has been a much friendlier place to fintechs and challenger banks in particular. But keep in mind that if you were trying to start a consumer-based startup, right? The only place you could really go in that time period, 2008 to 2012, was the US because the West Coast VCs and Silicon Alley, you know, in New York were really the only venture capital money that was available for fintechs at the time. There was no money coming out of Europe. There was certainly no money in Asia at the time for fintechs. And so the only real option if we wanted to raise money was the US. And so we were able to raise, but our lead on our series seed was Anthemus, which is based in London, you know, <laughs> ironically. But if we weren't in the US looking at the US market as a challenger, then I don't think we would have been able to raise that early cash. Obviously, by 2014, 2015, we had two businesses. We had the banking as a service business and the challenger bank. And the reason for that was TD Bank, Westpac in Australia, New Zealand, others had seen our launch of the mobile challenger app in the US and said it was revolutionary and they wanted a piece of the action, you know. And so, Dave, you'll be proud of us from a design perspective here. But if you look at Starling Bank and Monzo today as an example, both of them have on their homepage a circular artifact, right, a circle that represents some uh, value of the money. We were the first banking app in the world to use the homepage in that manner back in December of 2012. We were the first mobile app that allowed you to apply for a bank account in the app, right? Yeah. We were the first that gave you contactless. Even before Google Wallet and Apple Pay were a thing, we had a contactless sticker you could stick on the back of your phone that was integrated real time with the app. And when you tapped your phone, you got a receipt on your phone digitally. So we were the first to do that. We were the first to do categorization in real time for your spending and show you how you were going in terms of category spend, like dining out or you know taxis or whatever it might be. So many of those firsts that we did, that became design patterns for the challenger bank industry, frankly, you know. And so I feel like we really made our mark from a design perspective. No, I think you did. I saw a tweet, I think it was from Anne Boden, who credits you and Moven with kind of starting her journey down the path of starting. She does, and she mentioned that in her new book too. Uh, so yeah, yeah. I've got to buy her new book i've been reading the serialization yeah. in the sunday times i mean it's fascinating yes it is it is but i guess it's great to hear i mean in terms of the impact that you've managed to have for me the impact that we've had or the impact that i've had has been sort of driven by a lot of those meetings that we had in that no book. absolutely i wouldn't be where i am today hadn't we not been through that proving ground yes i sort of sat on the 118th floor of Ping An's tower talking to their head of technology in January so I mean this was before all of this yes before the COVID yeah before the COVID it was Ericsson Chan I think from 
Ping An. He said, oh, I remember you. I remember Heath Wallace. You did some work with us on Standard Chartered Bank. And I was like, what? Yes. Yeah, we did. And I think that was a collaboration that we... It was. It was 2007, and it was the global.com strategy for yeah. Standard Chartered. Absolutely. And- and he was like, well, that kind of got us going in terms of our strategy as well. So I thought that... Ali Lim was the driver of that project. And Dean Keller as well. Exactly, yeah, yeah. I guess the question I had for you, and I sort of know that you and I agree on this at this moment in time, is what the future is of it. So in the past, when we were dealing with internet banking 20 years ago, it was about effectively getting the most robust process that you could for a customer. So it was very transactionally focused. You know, now I can sort of see that actually transactions, they're sort of just part of the story. Engagement is incredibly important. And actually, engagement and relationship hasn't, I don't think, been particularly thought about. And I know Dharmesh completely agrees as well, is that's our passion point at the moment, is how do you kind of engage better with customers? Yeah, so let's start with it simply, you know, if you look at banking, challenger banks, because they don't have branches and don't have sort of manned call centers in typical sense, have to rely on digital to create a relationship with their customers. And so you see the cadence of their communication with customers is entirely different from traditional organizations. You know, you're getting emails every day. Here's some tips, how to stretch your budget further and things like that, you know, that you see from messaging perspective, whereas banks still think of email as the next best offer marketing channel. And so, you know, as a fintech, you bring the digital tools to play. But if you want to look at it, in terms of trajectory, it's very simple. You've got two axes. This is sort of the bank 1.0, 2.0, 3.0, 4.0 view, right? You've got two axes. We're moving from physical distribution systems to digital distribution systems. You know, we've just had Singles Day in China with the record, you know, double the sales of last year, massive boom in digital. Amazon has had their best results ever, 24% year-on-year increase for Q1 results, similar for Q2. Big massive growth. So it's happening the whole world over, moving from physical to digital distribution systems. You know, the gaffers, the Netflix, all that is included. On the banking side, though, the other thing you have is a whole lot of friction built around sort of the branch process and onboarding customers using a paper application. And that friction is the other axes. You've got Bank 1.0, traditional banking. Bank 2.0 was sort of the self-service era of banking where we were you know, playing, Dave. You know, it started in the 1980s and internet banking hit sort of through 2000. Then you have 2007, Bank 3.0, mobile, and then Bank 4.0 right, which is basically zero friction, low latency banking embedded in the world around you through technology. So whether it's smart glasses coming up in the next couple of years, your voice-based AI that you talk to, this cloud-based ecosystem will know about your money and it will be able to give you advice. So you'll be able to say, hey, uh, Siri, can I afford to go out for dinner tonight? And Siri will know the answer to that question because it knows about your aggregated financial view. And so you'll have this financial coach in your pocket. That's how you differentiate the utility of one bank or one financial services provider from another. But that ecosystem requires three sets of players 
right? It requires banks that have digitized. It requires tech giants who have the smart devices. And it requires the fintechs with the specialist capabilities they've developed, whether that is the challenger bank modality or it's something more like AI or whatever. And so that ecosystem is what comes together to create this embedded, ubiquitous banking system where it's just there when and where you need it. So you walk into a grocery store. What happens today? You walk in, you fill up your cart, you get to the checkout and your transactions decline because your salary hasn't hit the account yet. And so you're standing there and the cashier says, I'm sorry, Mr. Wallace, your card's been declined. And you're like, oh, oh. so what do you do? You say, can you try it again? Like magically more money's going to come into the account. Um, or, but bank You've been solution- following me, haven't you? I exactly. Know. But bank solution to that is, ah, oh, Mr. Wallace, you need a credit card. But a technologist doesn't think like that. A technologist says, well, hang on a second. We know how much you spend on groceries. We know your bank balance right now is below the level where it needs to be to buy your groceries. We know you just walked into a grocery store. Those three data points give us the ability now to provide you with credit in the store to solve that problem and circumvent the entire credit card product. You don't need an application form. You don't need a signature. You don't need a plastic card. None of that to solve that problem. That's what embedded ubiquitous financial services looks like. That's the future, a smart bank account in your pocket that helps you manage your money and be financially healthier. And that's not the role banks have played for the last 40, 50 years. Banks have used our money moments to create revenue, right? They have stimulated our spending and use of credit to increase revenue. So, hey, you can't afford it right now, get a credit card and you'll be able to afford it. You're just pushing that down the line. Hey, you know, spend more, get some airline miles, you know, spend more, get some cash back. We've stimulated the wrong impulses when it comes to the financial health of our customers. So I think COVID with the digital transformation pushes us into this world where the best banks will be smart banks that help you save money over time. Fantastic. I think there's so much to unpack there, but I can see it and I completely agree. This journey started with you and I in the trenches at HSBC with Peter Brooks and Michael Armstrong and Matt Dooley. And I'm so grateful to those guys. And I've said so, so often. Bank 2.0, my book wouldn't exist if Peter Brooks hadn't given me that budget burner project in 2005. And so I'm very grateful to you and Peter and the team there for giving me just such a phenomenal couple of decades in this space. And we're really grateful for the time that you spent on here. It's been jaw-droppingly interesting to find out the history behind some of this stuff. And you can't read it in the book, Rick. But it's really nice to hear the story behind the story, so to speak. Can we get this committed while we're online? <laughs> I yeah. would definitely like to speak about your next book and beyond that. The next decade is going to be so, so interesting. Yeah, I think It's so. going to be a time of enormous social upheaval and we can see it happening right now with the US. This is just the start because I'll give you this little bit of a trailer so we can have the sequel podcast for next time. But just a couple of stats for you. You know, since the mid-1990s, we've seen a 1,000% increase in protests in terms of volume and frequency of protests around the world. We see the US, the Trump supporters denying that Trump has lost the election, the populist movement, and interestingly, the movement of Bernie Sanders and AOC and all of that, and Elizabeth Warren, they actually happen because of similar drivers. And these drivers are going to accentuate into huge social change over the next decade. We'll get into that next time. Oh, I can't wait. Thank you so much, Brett. And thank you, Dave, as well. We'll see you next time. Thank you. Cheers, then. Thank you for tuning in to Dave and Don Demystify. We hope you join us next time and check back in the weeks ahead as we build our podcast vault on SoundCloud. 
Be sure to connect with Dave Wallace and Darmish Mystery on LinkedIn. And until next time, ciao and have a marvellous week. The Dave and Darm Demystify Show is a production of Contrarian New Media, London, Chicago and Austin, Texas.